Hiya, Duncan Green here. Welcome to 2020. Nice to be with you again. Um, the new decade, the new year, but the same old blog churning out the posts and still getting lots of readers, so that's nice. So I was going to bring you up to date with the posts in this first functioning week of the uh, new year. Started off with a traditional roundup of the previous year. So I do this every year where I put together the stats and the most read posts. Um, this year, the big change really in 2019 was the arrival of Maria Faciolince and the start of the Power Shifts project, aiming to give more voice to authors from the global south. The uh, the supply side has gone really well. Um, you know, I think we're really happy with the quality uh, of the posts we're getting and the, the, it's really, I think, strengthened the blog. Still got a way to go on the demand side, on the readers. Only three out of the ten top countries in terms of readership are developing countries, uh, South Africa, India and the Philippines. So we need to now concentrate on, on the demand side, I think. Anyway, looking at the overall numbers, the Google Analytics counts unique visitors, which are, it's a reader that comes from a particular IP address, a particular device. So if you access the blog on your laptop and on your mobile, you will count as two people. Um, but anyway, that's that's how you measure it. And the numbers for last year were 354,000 unique visitors, which is slightly up on the previous year, 329,000. So very happy with the numbers. As it's the end of the decade, I even looked back at the readers for the whole decade because the blog started in 2008. It's been going an awfully long time. And from 2010 to 2019, about 2.7 million unique visitors over the period. So, you know, it's been it's been a great um, it's been great fun over the last 10 years, and people seem to appreciate it and keep coming back, which is great. In terms of the most read posts for 2019, I look, looked in particular at the ones published in 2019 because what happens with a blog is that a posts some posts acquire this kind of extraordinary afterlife where they must be on reading lists or something. So they just keep coming back. So some random post about climate change in South Africa from 2009 regularly comes top uh, each year because somebody has put it on a big reading list somewhere. But this time I looked at the new posts, which ones of those have really made an impact. Two around the Nobel Prize. So the Economics Nobel Prize went to three of the leading uh, pioneers of randomized control trials. And so I did a post summarizing some of the critiques and some of the some of the discussions around RCTs. Um, and that got the top slots and also a sort of slipstream effect. Nyla Kabir, an interview with Nyla Kabir about some work she's done on randomized control trials also came in in the top five. Interestingly, um, Mark Goldring, my former boss at Oxfam, had two of the top five posts this year. First one he did a sort of out when he left Oxfam in, in at the start of the year he did a a post around about the what INGOs international NGOs have to do differently to be fit for the future um, and then he wrote another piece on does strategic planning make any difference and what do you have to what kind of strategic planning actually makes a difference and what is just a talking shop and both of those came in the top five and then the final one in the top five was by Tina Passanen of the Overseas Development Institute ODI who wrote a very nice polemic called Are We Suffering from Obsessive Measurement Disorder? So anybody in the aid business knows that we spend a lot of time discussing how to measure. Are we measuring the right things? Why can't we measure the stuff we really care about? You know, this whole question of, of are we counting what counts? 
And Tina did a really nice piece on that, which got a lot of interest. Then second up, uh, in my feed at the start of the week, I noticed a really nice roundup of the year in Africa. So this is from a crew called This Week in Africa, which is hosted by the University of San Francisco. Uh, there's a guy called Jeffrey Paller from America and a guy called Phil, that's all I know about him, from Zimbabwe. Um, and they regularly do an incredibly comprehensive, as far as I can see, l- l- roundup of links on different stories in Africa. And this was their annual sort of summary. And they had their top stories on the year, the, 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 the whole question of Sudan, the conflict in Sudan, the, the uprising and the overthrow of Omar Bashir. A series of protracted conflicts like Cameroon and Sahel, climate change, Ebola, but then some less, some more surprising ones, at least to me. The increasing influence of Russia, um, peace deals in the Central African Republic, South Sudan and Mozambique. And then it was a very long email that had all this. So I just took some highlights and the ones I couldn't include were some great links on African cuisine, daily life. So if you're interested in any aspects really of Africa as a continent, I do urge you to have a look at This Week in Africa. It's, you sign up on email and it's a great source. The um, third post of the week was on a, a very UK-centric spat, uh, a, a fight over the aid, who runs the aid programme. Uh, in 1997, as one of the first acts of the incoming Labour government, they set up an independent separate Department for International Development, DFID, with a seat in the Cabinet, uh, with a full full Secretary of State, full Minister. Um, and DFID, I think, has been a fascinating organisation. I've been associated with it. I even worked for it for a year. Um, since it was founded, I think it's done some great stuff. It's also done lots of stuff which is not great, which we regularly complain about. But um, Boris Johnson is not a big fan of DFID. Uh, when he was foreign secretary, he accused it of behaving like some independent Scandinavian NGO. So I think the two things that, he, the, the, that his team are concerned about is that it's not pursuing British national interest sufficiently. It's too much gu- guided by uh, an independent assessment of poverty reduction, which is set in in law now as its main aim. But also increasingly... Yeah, because the British aid budget is fixed in law as a minimum of 0.7% of gross national income, it's become a bit of a honeypot for other ministries who want to get their hands on that money. You know, it's quite a significant amount of money now. It's about £14 billion a year. Other ministries strapped for cash. They want a piece of the action. So there's a big pressure on the Foreign Office to take back DFID as it was before 1997 as a Foreign Office operation. Now, when this was... This was put out over so just before Christmas and over Christmas as part of the post-Brexit restructuring in Whitehall. And there's a big, big pushback, pushback from senior Tory uh, ex-aid ministers like Andrew Mitchell and Alistair Burt, aid professionals, NGOs, big fuss, big noise. Um, and I think, you know, with lots of good substance behind it. So I think, firstly... We've seen this in other countries. So we've seen the aid ministry being taken into the foreign office or the foreign ministry in Canada, uh, in New Zealand, in uh, Australia, in Norway. And it hasn't led to great improvements. There was a really good piece in Dev- on DevEx interviewing people in those countries about what had happened. Um, I think a very sort of a strong argument from some of those critics that this would lead to the loss of soft power, that, you know, 
because Diffid is almost like the last of the Mohicans, it's the last of the fully independent, fully fledged development ministries, it's got particular clout in that international conversation around aid and development, which would be lost. But also, one of the reasons it was set up in the first place is because there were some monumental messes when it was part of the Foreign Office, in particular, a, a court case in the mid-90s where the British government gave aid to a uh, the Pergao Dam in Malaysia in return for arms sales to Malaysia, and it was a disaster, and the court case went against the government brought by the World Development Movement, which is now Global Justice Now, and people still remember that in Whitehall as a, as a you know, deeply embarrassing moment. So these are the sort of arguments against. The perils of publishing a breaking story like this is, just as I was about to publish, there was something in the mail, the, the, the uh, Daily Mail online, saying, oh no, they're not going to do it. Um, I thought I'd publish it anyway, just because you know it was only one, sto- one source, and you, you, I just think this is going to keep coming back. And sure enough, the next day when it was published, it turned out that actually what the government is going for is a halfway house where Diffid will be kicked out of cabinet and the foreign secretary, Dominic Raab, will represent Diffid in cabinet, but it will retain its um, independent status and its budget. So we shall see what that means in practice. No one really seems to know whether that's a big deal, a small deal, uh, you know, whether it's the start of a slippery slope. So I don't think this issue is going away. So if you're interested in the role of an independent aid ministry department in Britain, do look at the post marshal the arguments, talk to your friends and try and uh, make sure that the aid programme doesn't suffer as a result of these internal machinations within Whitehall. The last two posts of the week were from the Power Shifts project uh, pulled together by by Maria. The first one was by Ibrahim Hasso, House Nowendo and Sam Green and it was on including local knowledge into climate planning and politics based on some work with pastoralists in the arid areas of Kenya. And what it showed, I think, and we've had some other posts recently on this, the power of maps. The maps are the original data viz, the original data visualisation. They have an extraordinary ability to bring people together. Everybody can get together, draw up a map, look at a map, argue about what is and isn't on a map, and it provides a kind of... um, a, a neutral ground where you can actually talk about your issues and what it does is it means that local pastoralists and government officials can get together and have a useful conversation and they can talk about difficult stuff like spiritual sites which you don't want developed or you know that kind of thing as well as just the obvious stuff of where's the water very important in this particular case in in the arid areas of Kenya Um, so it provides um, a very good way to bring people together and it highlights problems like you know poorly placed water sources which act as a magnet for cattle and then leads lead to overgrazing now it's not uh yeah it doesn't solve everything and it has its own problems so you're trying to bring together people on a regular basis to update maps well first of all it costs money you know that sort of process but second who's actually going to be in the room because you know for example men and women typically are going to highlight different aspects on the maps. So have you got proper inclusion of both men and women in this? Um, so you need to think about you know, power and inclusion doesn't go away just because you're doing a map. But it's a really interesting, almost like a sort of way of convening a conversation uh, and producing something which everybody can buy into. So the interesting process. And then the last piece of the, of the week was by Farida Benner of the uh, IRC, 
um, the International Refugee Council. Uh, and it was an interview with Rajendra Kumar, who's the director of the School of Architecture at the Noida uh, International University in India. And this was about a, uh, looking at what is the role of architecture in tackling things like homelessness and ill-being in cities. Um, and his view, uh, yeah, as head of the architecture school, is unsurprisingly that good architecture is about much more than pretty buildings. That it leads to, it leads to health, it leads to reduced stress, and it can, and it can ta- be part of tackling homelessness. Uh, he, he talks very graphically about how things are changing in India. Um, he talks about you know, that India has three extreme climates, and typically in the course of a year there is extreme heat, extreme cold, and extreme rain, and all three are getting more extreme because of climate change, and that's bringing the issue of homelessness even more into the fore uh, of, of Indian politics. So that was the last piece. I'm going to stop there, uh, wishing you all a happy, a happy 2020. You never know, fingers crossed, and a good weekend. Bye.